From Relay FM, this is Download, recorded Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. This is episode 104, I Don't Know What X Means Anymore. Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm joined this week by a special co-host, Shelley Brisbane. Hi, Shelley. Hey, Jason. Now, you host a podcast here on Relay FM. We should tell people about it so that they can go subscribe to it. I do. It's called Parallel. It is a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles, which means my guests and I talk about tech topics, but with an accessibility perspective in mind. And that is every two weeks on Relay. comes out every two weeks Tuesday. Yep. People should check it out. Uh, Stephen Hackett is not here this week. Um, We have a bunch of conflicting things going on. uh, And for those who are loyal listeners who are very upset that a couple weeks ago we missed a week because of uh, various personal scheduling things, uh, that will also be true next week, which is, uh, we could say it's like Memorial Day, holiday weekend or whatever. But the the fact is, uh, we have to skip next week. So we'll be back in two weeks live in San Jose for Apple's developer conference. So we will uh, be back then. But uh, we've got a whole week worth of news to talk about now, Shelley, you and I. And we should get started with one of the big stories, I think, of our time, honestly, which is the increasing tension between the U.S. and China when it comes to this technology transfer that has been built up over the last few decades that is now kind of being called into question. And the the real flashpoint here is the Chinese uh, tech company Huawei, which makes phones and laptops and other devices. And they also make lots of uh, networking equipment and 5G networking. And the U.S. government has for a while now been lobbying other Western governments to not deploy Huawei technology in their 5G networks. Uh, The implication, although it's rarely stated with any detail about why they think this way and what information they have, the implication is that the Huawei technology can be used potentially for uh, spying by the Chinese government or spying or sabotage or something like that. There, it, There's a lot of implication without a lot of detail. And it got even more complicated in the last week as Google pulled its license at the behest of the U.S. government uh, from the, the license for Android from Huawei, which would mean that Huawei phones that currently run Android could continue. Uh, I think they can get updates for a short period. There was a short extension, but new Huawei phones coming uh, down the road would not be able to include Android on their devices, which would be really tough. And uh, some other stuff also happened. Huawei's um, very well thought of laptop, the MateBook X or MateBook 10. Apple has ruined me. I don't know what X's mean anymore. <laughs> uh, that vanished from uh, online stores because apparently the Windows license has also been revoked as a part of this. Um, there are other uh, things going on. Arm, which is a British company, but licenses processor designs. Some of its licensing and patents are in the hands of uh, the United States. And as a result, there have been reports that arms license to Huawei is also revoked. And what this means is that Huawei is put in a position where since it needs 
Android or Windows and it needs ARM processors or uh, I haven't seen a report about Intel, but presumably Intel will have a related situation here that this is essentially the U.S. saying you can't be in business because you're using our stuff and we won't let you have it anymore. There is also a report about a couple of uh, Chinese companies that make video surveillance equipment potentially being uh, blacklisted. And uh, yeah, there is there is a whole lot going on here in what some people are calling the tech cold war. So it's a huge it's a huge thing. Uh, you have any initial thoughts about this as you observe the the carnage that's been happening the last couple of weeks? I guess the thing that surprised me most was how quickly it happened. And you can start pulling all those threads. And for example, the ARM thing, because it's a British company, uh, and you can trace those patents back to US origin, but it appears that they either did that with behind the scenes nudges or just said, oh, we're in trouble, we better do it now. And it, it, it was really surprising how fast it happened. It just the ripples have been really quite quick. And of course, the the government, uh, the US government did the 90 day waiver for some companies uh, Monday, but even so, this is continuing. to. And, and I thought initially that that was going to be sort of a, okay, we're going to chill out, we're going to figure out how this is going to be going forward. But that doesn't seem to be the case, because that waiver does not affect all the companies. And, and certainly right. ARM is one of those. Right. It sounds like um, my interpretation of it was that that was basically Google, for example, saying, um, we would like existing customers to continue to receive security updates, and right. and they for, they got an extension for that. But it doesn't really go to the core of shipping devices that run Android and have access to the Play Store. And although there is an open source version of Android that Huawei could use, uh, it doesn't have access to all the Google services, which means that they would be lost. The Play Store, Google Maps, all sorts of stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, that's not going to work. That's, be, it's just not. <laughs> it's kind of untenable. I mean, it, it is possible, and it hasn't happened yet. It is possible that somebody uh, could... Uh, and I know that there are other Chinese phone makers that have done this in China. You could walk away with the the Android open source stuff and build a parallel Android that is uh, entirely Chinese and have different Chinese phone makers contribute to it. That could they could do that, but um, I don't think that that's really happened. Every phone maker can make modifications on their own, but that that would that would allow Huawei to continue operating in China, but it wouldn't allow Huawei to continue operating in all the other markets that it plays on. And even though it's not a big player in America, it is a big player in other parts of the world, including Europe. And um, it's funny, I was reminded of the ZTE story, if you remember that from a few, yeah. like six months ago, where they got kind of the death penalty for, um, which was then rescinded. But the idea there was that they were selling, um, I think, technology to Iran and they were caught and they said they wouldn't do it again and then they did it again and I think that that's some of the undercurrent here too is that Huawei has some behavior that 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 uh, the US government thinks is uh, unacceptable but it's hard not to look at this and just say this is a much larger issue about the US and China jousting with one another to see uh, I, I don't know what just is this more about uh, getting a trade deal or or is this about legitimate fear of uh, Chinese technology being able to be subverted by the Chinese government? I don't. I don't know because I don't think we've seen a lot of evidence. And there's this big, you know, cloud out there that's like we've heard some reports that the U.S. government has shown some tech people something, but 
it's a really, you know, it it's very hard to differentiate between whether this is just about sowing fear in China or whether there are legitimate indications that the Chinese government is using tech companies in China like Huawei to plant basically backdoors or other things that give them access once that tech is spread around the world. It's, it's the realm of speculation, obviously, but it, it feels to me like the U.S. government has probably wanted for a long time to do some sort of crackdown in this way. And I mean, pre this administration where trade policy is very different than it was before. But it feels like that never would have been a possibility did we not have the framework of this trade war. And I perhaps there is evidence out there that of, of something actually going on that would would make this thing more urgent. But it seems like the two things are are feeding on one another in terms of the U.S. taking action that it might have wanted to before, but for a variety of reasons, not least of which is the impact on U.S. businesses that it would not necessarily have done. So it's it's really interesting in that way. And as I say, I just am stunned by how quickly it's happening and how effectively a lot of the stories that I read initially really did focus on how this is potentially a a death blow to Huawei, not just something that will, you know, get over and go past. And and in Huawei, whatever connection it has to the Chinese government is a large company doing business around the world. Interestingly enough, just a random tidbit, I actually know somebody in the U.S. who has a Huawei phone Hmm. and she bought it. It's a nice phone, uh, but she bought it because it's considerably cheaper than the uh, U.S. offerings uh, available. It's, and uh, I, I, I have uh, have been known to tease her about her Huawei phone and, and ask her if uh, she's uh, checked to see who's listening to her conversations. But uh, uh, I and and but it doesn't have a presence in the United States market broadly, but as a lower cost competitor to other you know premium phones, uh, it's it's a player in a lot of the world. Yeah, the um, I'm reminded of the big hack, which is that uh, Bloomberg story that's so weird because mm, everybody involved, me too. Den- everybody involved denied it, including parts of the U.S. government, and Bloomberg has not retracted it. And uh, it is common now sort of as sport for some people to beat on that story and say this is obviously a, uh, a ridiculous story. And maybe it is. But it's always been a little bit weird. Like, how did Bloomberg get all these details? And if you didn't read this story, if you don't remember it, this is a story that says that there's a Chinese supplier that was embedding stuff on circuit boards that could be subverted. That it was a, it was actually, they were planting things on other people's circuit boards that would be in other people's servers or computers that then would have the ability to phone home. And the idea there is that it, it's not necessarily industrial espionage. It may be uh, government espionage where, um, you know, the Chinese government may be involved. And what, what I only mention it just to say that when we're in this position where not a lot of details have come out, I start to look at a story like that and think, I wonder if there really is something much larger going on here that nobody wants to talk about. And and that is, what if there is something else? And, and maybe Bloomberg didn't quite get it right. Maybe they, they got the tip of the iceberg. Maybe they thought they were seeing an iceberg, but they weren't. But there is still an iceberg. Forgive the iceberg metaphors, uh, fans of the Titanic. Uh, but uh, I start to wonder, like, it is, again, it could all just be a uh, uh, just a load of BS, right? It could be, or it could be, <laughs> or not. Because, because the other side of this, because, because you know, I want to say, like, yes, there there is posturing going on because there's a trade war going on, and the U.S. government is not uh, uh, favorable to China, and they're really putting the screws to them. The other side of it is, 
China is a totalitarian authoritarian government. And although that they have had some economic reforms to allow companies like Huawei to exist, you do have to look at it and say, if the Chinese government came to Huawei and said, the only way we're going to allow you to profit and have your executives be well paid and all of that is you need to play ball with our secret you know, police, our secret intelligence service, our, our equivalent of the NSA, and we're going to plant stuff in your technology. And uh, that's not outrageous. It is a controlled society where if you say no, your business will fail, basically. It will, that will be, or you will be removed until somebody is replaced because that is how the Chinese system works. It's an authoritarian, totalitarian regime. So there is, I don't know whether that actually has happened, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that something like that happened. No. And if you were in the U.S. government, in the intelligence service or in the military commands that have to do with uh, this sort of stuff, you would absolutely advise the government to be wary of such things and to do the things that one must do to find out whether they exist, because it's not China is an adversary. What they specifically have done, they're obviously not going to tell us, but behaving as if they are an adversary is entirely appropriate. And uh, whatever you feel about what the administration has done in terms of tariffs, obviously tension has been ratcheted up between the two countries. And the other thing I'd say with regard to the thing we learned in the, the big hack, which was uh, which is relevant to this, is we talk about phones and we talk about laptops. Those are easy products to understand and they're consumer facing. But Huawei makes, as I think you said, and is certainly in all the, the articles that, that we've been looking at for, for this show, uh, makes a lot of routing equipment network and network equipment and cell phone, right? cell yeah. phone towers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the stuff that is required to make these systems work, if those things were taken offline or if they were subverted in some way, the communications infrastructure of the world and specifically the U.S. would be compromised. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's something you, you mentioned struck me, the idea that uh, this is a thing, whether it's true or not, th- this is a thing that you can raise, right? And that that's where I kind of fall as the, the w- that's the big question mark is, I don't know whether it's real or not. I don't know if anybody knows whether it's real or not. But I do think that this is a question that if you if you we live in such an interconnected world, especially when it comes to technology. And yet we're in a position now where not everything is open source. These things are closed. And if there is something in there that's closed purposefully, you know, it could be a bug. That's what happens with a lot of hacking now is it's just bugs. But what if there's a purposeful backdoor and and a purposeful something that could be used in the case of a conflict? And that goes both ways. I mean, the, the same argument could be made that, you know, all these PCs in China are using uh, operating systems created in uh, either Washington State or California, right? And like, in Intel chips, AMD chips, and, yeah. and they're using and the processor. Well, right, and so I could see I can see both sides of it. That one of the challenges here is this level of trust you need to have in the people who are making the products that um, that are being shipped across country lines. You you have to trust a company on the other side that what they're doing that they would be they'd lose their business if it was revealed that they were acting on the interests of that foreign government in order to spy on their customers, right? That's the that's the idea there, is that they would no longer be able to sell their products anywhere else if they were perceived that way. It would be a huge... And that's why they wouldn't do it. Um, it's le- more likely for a public American company than it is for a, uh, a Chinese company that is getting pressure from its government, which has much more control over it. But it is striking 
Also, something else, the narrative that we've had, I feel like, over the last few years about China and the U.S. is, and, and it was exacerbated by the presidential campaign, too, and, and the administration since uh, taking office, that, uh, oh, everything the tech industry does in, is in China. And this week has really pointed out that that's not true, that there's so much in the supply chain, there's so much assembly that happens in China. But ask Huawei about the ability of Chinese industry to create processor designs and operating systems. Not to mention the fact that if you look at most analysis of what gets put in a smartphone in those Chinese factories, most of the tech that gets assembled is not from China, is not from Chinese designs. And I just, I, I it was all laying there, but it is a very interesting thing to see that this is one way that people outside of China can exert force on Chinese companies is China can't take its ball and go home. Because the operating systems are American. The chip designs are American and European. They can't, they can't, they can't stand alone. Now, the factories are Chinese. So here we are. Yeah, but at the same, at the same time, the American companies that produce the hard, those hardware and software components are increasingly, if not dependent on Chinese business, they are, there are companies like Apple who have a vice president for China. Yes, They have huge investments in the Chinese economy, which could potentially create all sorts of risks for those businesses individually and for the United States writ large. On the customer side, right? Because theoretically, the middle class in China is on its way to being the size of the U.S. population, right? It's an enormous consumer market that if you turn your back on, you're losing a huge area of growth for your company. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I have, I, I, unfortunately, I cannot provide the, uh, the solution to all of this. <laughs> Wait, I was promised solutions. That's what I come for. But uh, it, is, it is a fascinating back and forth and seeing the complicated nature. The, the bottom line is, our world is interconnected. Our tech industry is interconnected. And it has been built on an assumption of, I would say, of good faith among all of the manufacturers of technology. And what this, what these moves do is undermine the assumption of good faith. And I, I have yet to see any allegation from somebody saying that American chip designs or operating systems have been rigged to benefit the U.S. government. But certainly there have been arguments when Congress has talked about passing laws demanding encryption backdoors where that has come up. The idea that you could create, uh, you could mandate that Microsoft and Google and Apple have to build backdoors into their software that the U.S. government would have access to, and that's not going to fly with people in other countries. So it does go both ways, even though right now the, the focus is on China and Huawei. Sure. And and just quickly, I would say that that is, I think, Apple's argument, their long game argument about why they don't want to put encryption backdoors, because I think most of the conversation, the sort of one side versus the other side that you see in a lot of uh, news stories, doesn't really take into account the long view. And Apple is saying, look, the reason that we don't want to do this is because we don't want to be forced to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we will keep watching. And I think it's one of the big stories of our age right now going Indeed. on. Uh, let's take a break. And let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you in part by Direct Mail. Direct Mail is an easy to use email marketing app designed exclusively for the Mac to help you create and send great looking email 
newsletters. Email marketing, still an incredibly cost-effective way to reach customers and to grow your business. And for the last 15 years, Mac users around the world have trusted Direct Mail to handle all of their email marketing needs. It's designed just for the Mac. It's fast. It's easy to use. It works great with the other Mac apps, the other services you use. With Direct Mail, you can get in-depth campaign reports that show you who is reading, clicking, and sharing your newsletters. You can grow your mailing list by creating email sign-up forms that you can add to your website or Facebook. Facebook page, and you can have email campaigns sent automatically without you lifting a finger. And much more, they have real human live chat customer support available to answer all of your questions. And Direct Mail is the number one top-rated email marketing app for the Mac. Five-star reviews on the App Store, GetApp, and elsewhere. Trusted by small businesses, nonprofits, schools, and Fortune 500 companies alike. It's free to download and get started. Listeners of this podcast can get 10% off of all full-feature pricing plans by going to directmailmac.com slash download fm so check them out directmailmac.com slash download fm you'll get 10 percent off when you opt for a full feature plan thank you to direct mail for supporting download and all of relay fm now it's time for the story you might have missed something that may have flown under your radar but is at least worth mentioning uh apple had in what is kind of a surprise a proposal this week to fix Web ads. You don't really think of Apple and think of web ads, but Apple does have a commitment to uh, user privacy, and they make uh, operating systems with a very popular web browser, especially the iOS version, and that is Safari. And Apple has been trying to find ways to keep user privacy while also providing interestingly enough, data that is required for web ads to be successful. So Apple made a proposal and has suggested it to standards bodies this week. And the idea here is basically it wants to create a way that you can click on an ad and potentially buy a product. And that data is stored and then transmitted asynchronously at some point in the next couple of days. Uh, and anonymized. And the idea there is that if you if you click a web ad and then buy something and they happen sequentially, it's much easier to connect them together and say, aha, they clicked over here and they bought over there. And Apple says that's a violation of your privacy. So what they want to do is kind of find ways to uncouple it. And this is very complicated and it's kind of weird and it's unclear how, um, how the ad industry is going to react. But I think what's interesting about it is Apple saying, okay, we get it. We get that web ads need to exist. Exist. We don't want them to be privacy leak ads. We want them to just be ads and work as ads and not as trackers. How do we do that? And this is their proposal. Now, it may not go anywhere. Obviously, the do not track thing that came up a while ago basically failed. So who knows whether this will work, whether other browsers will support it, whether ad companies will like it. But I think it kind of flew under the radar. And I think it's interesting that that of all the things that Apple has been spending time having their people research, making better web ads. But I guess if not them, then who? I don't know. I'm always happy when a company takes a standards-based approach, so that made me happy. And and I was also intrigued that the Mozilla Firefox uh, comment uh, right away was, that's interesting. We might, we'll talk about that. Uh, it, just, it just feels like, uh, and, and the other thing is that Apple 
it, it seems very typical of Apple that they they do they obviously make money through advertising, but via their own apps in the App Store, and so they're doing what they often do, which is saying, how can we take this business that we're in, but that we're doing a little bit differently than everybody else, and find a way to continue to uh, play to our strengths and maybe uh, uh, tweak the other guys a little bit in terms of web ads. So I, I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but it's it's interesting and it seems it seems to match up with uh, Apple's way of doing things. Right. And it, and it couples like Apple is only interested in web ads functioning. They're not interested in tracking, whereas most of the people involved in web advertising are interested in tracking. So it is Indeed. in Apple's best interest to say, um, what if we did web advertising without tracking? Because who else is going to say that? But they, they uh, so, you know, people don't like ads. And and, and I think uh, generally on the web, mostly because they're so bad. But uh, partially, honestly, I turned an ad off on, on my blog the other week, mostly because I just decided it wasn't worth the privacy considerations. That was the bottom line was like, it's an external load. I don't know what they're doing with the data. I don't like it. It makes me feel uneasy. I just turned it off. So, you know, having ads not be fundamentally a privacy concern would not be a bad thing, I think. Let's talk about, speaking of Apple, about another announcement that Apple made that did not really fly so much under the radar. Now, they, they you know, boosted the processors in the MacBook Pro product line. Yes, that happened. 15-inch MacBook Pro now can have up to an 8-core i9 processor. It's the ninth generation of Intel processors. So those are pro systems. And if you are somebody who wants the maximum amount of power in an Apple laptop, you can now get it. It also happened in less than, uh, I think it was 10 months since the last update. There was a period a few years ago where people complained that Apple's uh, Macs got updated very infrequently and there would be new Intel processors laying out there and Apple wouldn't put them in systems for a long time. That has not been the case the last few years that Apple really has sort of picked up the pace there. That's all good. But really what people want to talk about is the fact that this new set of MacBook Pros has a slightly modified keyboard. This is depending on how you're counting the third or fourth or fifth variation on this butterfly keyboard design that was first introduced in 2015 with the MacBook and has now extended across the entire line. So they keep making changes to it based on user complaints. And while Apple Apple is very clear to say the vast majority of users have had no problems with the keyboard and love their MacBook Pros. The fact is that Apple still is investing engineering time making tweaks to this design because of so many people's complaints that keys either don't generate letters when they press them or generate two letters when they press them, neither of which is good. So they say that this new change, which is to the materials being used in the switch, as opposed to the silicone they put on last time, is supposed to dramatically decrease the incidence of double keys or no keys when you press a key. Um, They also extended their service program so that now every single Apple computer with this keyboard, no matter when it was made, is under the service program for four years, so goes way beyond the original warranty for four years since you bought it new at retail. And that is clearly Apple sending a message that they don't want people afraid to buy a Mac laptop because they've heard that the keyboard is unreliable. Um, And finally, they have also announced uh, in recent weeks that they've dramatically increased the turnaround time of keyboard repairs 
in Apple stores. And that is part of the story, too, is nobody wants to walk away from an Apple store without their laptop for who knows how many days. And they're trying to speed that up, too. So clearly, even though the vast majority, says Apple, of people don't have a problem with this keyboard, uh, enough people have had it and have written about it and have told their friends about it that Apple is trying to make gestures to say, no, 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 don't worry. It's fine. We've made it better. And even if it does happen, uh, we, we will fix it for free and get it back to you fast. And if you're making, if you're using a laptop that was made in 2018, they will actually, when they do this repair, replace it with the new material that is in these new laptops from 2019. So I don't know, Shelly, do you have any of these laptops and how are you feeling about Apple's kind of mixed message about it's fine, except when it's not, but then it's fine. Uh, well, I uh, have a 2015 MacBook Pro, so I am under the wire. I did. I am not subject to this, and I also use my laptops in clamshell mode most of the time. So, I guess I, uh, I, f- I feel bad for my many friends and compatriots who who have this uh, have these problems. Uh, and I have so many absurdist absurdist takes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the third or fourth generation. We're back to iPad iPod Nanos now with, with generations. And I also uh, Apple. Laptops are often identified by the year they are produced and by some feature like the touch bar. So I imagine saying I have a 2019 MacBook Pro with a third generation keyboard and a touch bar. It's just like mm-hmm. too many, too many variants. And uh, no, and, and I feel also, I guess the more more serious, it feels like this is the kind of announcement Apple makes right before, say, a keynote. They slough off the announcements that they would rather not. They're, they're clearly not going to talk about the a keyboard replacement program at a keynote, but right. the processor upgrades feel like they're making room for other things. And nobody, and nobody's going to be asking about the MacBook Pro now, right? Because right, right. they shouldn't be because they just got updated. Because so they've just done something. The and not very many people will have had the opportunity to take a look at the newer generation of the keyboard and, and make their evaluation. But it, it does seem like one of the major Apple flubs of the past several years. And, you know, I hope because I would like to buy a new laptop soon that <laughs> that uh, that they can put this behind them because it's it's a very bad look. Yeah, I don't particularly like the style of the keyboard in general. It is low travel and uh, the arrow key layout is weird. And there's lots of things I don't like about it. But in the end, the big issue is is not that. It's that people have – it's gotten a reputation, right? And the reputation, it doesn't really matter if Apple says, oh, it's only 98% or 94% or 91% successful. It doesn't matter what that number is if the perception is that – this keyboard's a loser, it's a lemon, and you shouldn't buy it. And what's interesting is Apple clearly is not capable of doing a new keyboard right now. They This design is designed for this keyboard, and they can't abort it because they keep trying to fix it. There's a reason they keep trying to fix it. It's because they don't have the next generation MacBook Pro design ready, and so they have to keep fixing this one. And it's just not, not exactly a vote of confidence when they keep saying, uh, you know, well, no, 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 this time we we really fixed it. It's not a problem, but we we fixed it anyway, even though it's not a problem. And I've heard several people point out, and I, you know, I know why they did this. I think it's good because I think it's giving people peace of mind in buying a new laptop. But somebody said it, and I think it's fair to at least say, uh, and roll your eyes a little bit. Isn't it great that Apple is now? providing a uh, an extended service program for its new keyboard design that is supposedly fixed 
And is that a vote of confidence or not? Now, I think I think it's Apple just trying to say, no, 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 not only did we fix it, but if something comes up, we still are going to cover it for years. Really, really, really don't be worried about it. And it'll be fixed at the Apple store before you know it. Like they're, they're piling on all of this stuff because they know that there are a lot of people out there who've basically gotten the word, don't buy an Apple laptop right now because the keyboards are bad. And that's not great. Also, by the way, if you keep your laptop more than four years and you've got a bad keyboard, then four years out when it breaks, you are going to have to pay to fix it, which is no good either. The, the keyboard program has an acronym. I mean, that tells you almost all you need to know. It's... <laughs> <laughs> KBRP is it K- keyboard replacement program? Mm. When I saw, I, I was not really familiar with it since it doesn't affect me personally, and I happened to see that the other day, and I was just like, oh, really? Okay, so it's that institutionalized yeah. that we have an acronym for the keyboard program. Yeah, and it was it was only up through the 2017 models, and then this uh, week they announced that they will cover 2018 and 2019 right. models too, and the reports are that the 2018 models will get the 2019 keyboard. If they go through that program, but the old and I are and I luck. wonder, I would imagine a lot of people would go through that program because when they updated the MacBook Pros last summer, I knew a fair number of people who bought them. They had been waiting for a while, not specifically because the keyboard had problems, but because there were problem other problems with the previous MacBook Pros and they hadn't been updated in a while. And so I feel like, and it is entirely unscientific, but I feel like there are a lot of people out there who you know finally bit that bullet and bought the laptop that they always wanted because it was. A, a good uh, laptop, and then uh, they may uh, still be bringing it back to the Apple Store because of a keyboard problem, because they can now. Yeah, well, I mean, the nice thing is that they are covered, and they will get the, if they bought the, a 2018 model, they'll get the 2019 model if their keyboard is replaced, and hopefully the turnaround won't be so bad. Still, what you really want is a keyboard that everybody can rely on and that has exactly. is much more reliant. And uh, I, I would have to believe, I've heard some people say, oh, I can't believe that Apple still thinks that this keyboard is good. I don't think Apple thinks this keyboard is good. I think Apple desperately wants to get rid of this keyboard, but it just can't yet. Its designs aren't far enough along and those laptops will come and they won't have this keyboard anymore. But in the interim, Apple would really like you to keep buying laptops and not just stop buying laptops because this keyboard is yep. has got an incidence of failure. I will say I have three of these keyboards in my house. None of them have failed. So... <laughs> I don't know. Well, well, you're not clearly getting the word out on Apple's I behalf. I guess not. I guess not. Uh, I haven't had to take one of those in yet, but you never know. Um, more to talk about. Let's take another break. Let me tell you about our second sponsor on this episode of Download. It is ExpressVPN. Sometimes cybercrime seems like something from the movies. It's hard to imagine somebody trying to get hold of your information, but stealing data using public Wi-Fi is a really easy way for bad guys to make money, and it does happen to regular people. If you leave your internet connection unencrypted, your data could be vulnerable. Here's something you can do to protect yourself and your data. Use ExpressVPN. Not tomorrow, not sometime next week. Use it today. It secures and anonymizes your internet browsing. It encrypts your data. It hides your public IP address. It's got easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your device. You can turn on protection with one click or tap, and then you're free to safely surf, especially on that public Wi-Fi that's unencrypted. You won't be snooped on. You won't have your personal data stolen. ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. It comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. I have used it. Super easy to use. I used it on my iPad. Just tap once, that's it. Suddenly, encrypted, that Starbucks Wi-Fi, nobody in there can see anything I'm doing because 
it's encrypted. For less than $7 a month, you can get that same protection. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep the bad guys away, you need ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash download podcast to learn more. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash download podcast. That's expressvpn.com slash download podcast for three months free with a one-year package. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting download and all of Relay FM. Okay, let's move on to our next topic. It is GDPR. Remember that? The idea that the European uh, Commission had these new privacy rules and we all had to like agree to things if you were going to do business in Europe and you had to say, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, throw away personal data after a certain amount of time and all, all sorts of stuff like that. Well, California last year ha- passed a new law that would institute much more strict uh, rules about data handling. And since California is uh, a very large state in the United States, it potentially could have an impact on all of the data collection in the U.S. This law is supposed to go into effect, into effect in January of next year. And uh, there's an interesting story that I read that was in uh, on NBC News's website about how it's a challenge to... Uh, to uh, implement this. They don't necessarily have all the people to do all the work they need to do to implement this. But with um, my understanding is with the, um, the, the composition of Congress split, it's a lot less likely than it was a year ago that the U.S. would pass a preemptive law and have the president sign it that would not allow California to implement this. So it, it, it's more relevant um, that California is doing this. Microsoft this week uh, announced that they would like a privacy law. Uh, that catches up with what Europe is doing. And this is the latest in a string of tech companies basically saying, look, we know you're going to regulate us. Can we, um, can we do that? If we're, we don't want to wait around, we don't want to implement this California law kind of piecemeal. Is the California law going to be the, uh, the definitive one here, or is it going to get superseded by something else? Uh, and it sounds like uh, who knows what it will be and who knows what our government is going to be capable of generating at all, uh, the U.S. government. But it sounds like everybody kind of has accepted that something is going to happen, whether California drags everybody to it or not. Yeah. And the interesting thing to me, my observation on the national level of why privacy regulations that a lot of people in various ways, I mean, conservative and, and, and liberals in the, in the Congress have expressed interest in privacy. Regulation would probably not be the word the conservatives would use, but some sort of privacy law. But I feel like on the national level, nobody has stepped up to to write that. Nobody has produced something. And to the extent the California law, with the support of one or more of the large tech companies, would provide a framework that might bring bring things further. Obviously, the const uh, the, the the way the Congress is constant. Uh, is constituted and the fact that uh, frankly there's a lot of political capital in being adversarial toward California in some quarters I worry about that a little bit mm-hmm. but some something's got to be put on the books first and hopefully it won't be like there's a lot of parallel to what California has tried to do in terms of regulation regulating uh, uh, mileage and emissions on cars and uh, the auto industry obviously had a big stake in that and tried to do something similar in terms of saying hey if, you know let us be involved in the regulatory framework 
framework. Uh, but there are a lot of places in the United States that are not California that do not particularly wish to be led by California. So it'll be interesting to see whether that becomes a political football, whether it allows people who, for whatever reason, don't support these rules to basically you know, provide op- opposition because it's a California-generated thing. But but as I say, I think the bottom line is somebody needs to create a framework, whether it's based literally on GDPR or whether it's some group in California that says, all right, here's what we want to try and do. Now, everybody, let's, you know, hack at it in several iterations and, and get something. Because on the on the national level, I haven't seen anybody propose anything. Yeah. And what is... An open question is like, will somebody make some sort of move to block what California is implementing? Because it's not, I mean, everything is going through California if you're doing business in the U.S. It's unlikely that people are going to say, nope, my website is not viewable in California. Maybe somebody will do that. But it seems more likely that, as you said, like with auto standards, that if California says, here are our auto standards, then American car makers are going to go, all right, well, I guess that we're we're not going to make a California car. So we're going to just make this the standard for everybody. And California drags everybody along, which is not a particularly fair process because it's just one large state throwing its economy around. Sometimes other states will join in. Um, Then that's usually when the uh, federal government will come in and say, oh, let's just do one standard for all of the United States. But they would have to agree on what that was. So, yeah, what will happen? I, I, as a resident of California, I do wonder uh, just will somebody who who will be the person to put up the website that says, sorry, you're browsing from California. California uh, people cannot come to my website. Perhaps somebody running for Senate in Texas, maybe. I, <laughs> that's what I was thinking: is a Texas website will block yes, me from clearly. going there. Yes, clearly. It, it won't that's be the one I run. But okay, yeah. thank you, thank you very much. Um, speaking of privacy, one other story I wanted to mention before we go um, is about uh, London and the Tube. Uh, so the London Underground and Transport for London, which is the agency that runs London public transport, they are turning on a feature called Wi-Fi tracking by default in July. And it I'll put a link to the TechCrunch story in the show notes. It's fascinating. The idea here is that they want to track what they say is anonymized, but they want to track um, how their system works. And it's fascinating in, in the sense that if you assume that everybody has at least one Wi-Fi enabled device in their pocket, that you can then gather that information, see where they go in your transportation system and create a data set that is person by person, every single trip that's taken on the transportation system, which from a data collection standpoint, from a I would say like social science standpoint, a, a, a transit planning and engineering standpoint. There's so many things about that that sound very cool. At the same time, this is a quasi government agency that is literally watching every place you go when you're traveling around the city. And, um, you know, I, I don't. I don't know if I have a, a, a pro or con opinion here other than to say that I, I get why anonymized versions of this would be interesting. I could see how this could be abused. I think Transport for London is trying to do the right thing, but it's unclear if they're actually doing the right thing. It's, uh, you know, a, a, and one person's great data is another person's surveillance state. Absolutely. I, I agree with you on both counts. And as, as my inner transit nerd is very excited about it. 
But I, yeah, from the personal tracking standpoint, and just again, like it, it, whether literally people are upset that they're being tracked in this specific instance, I tend to think it degrades people's confidence in their ability to move through their surroundings without being surveilled. It's just another uh, sort of, you know, opportunity for people to be unhappy about being surveilled. And, and but but as I say, my inner transit nerd loves it. Yeah. Also, the although this is one of those things where it's like, well, we're collecting data in order to improve your experience. Right. We see that a lot. <laughs> um, yes. But among the experiences that gets improved by by Transport for London's data potentially is advertising and advertising rates, because by doing this, you can theoretically figure out when people are at certain ad boards and how many. And potentially you could build almost like a mini Google ad network where the rates fluctuate based on who is going to be there at what time and how many of them. And that is not improving my... I mean. Maybe, but it's not really because it's not personalizing the ad experience. It's just improving how much money they get, which might go to a budget that improves the, you know, fixes the air conditioning on the train. But uh, (laughs) I'm not sure that it, it improves my experience. And it's just this is one of those interesting things where fundamentally this is not a terrible idea, but it could be used for things that are terrible ideas. And indeed, and, and and it's kind of a shame, but this is just this is the game we play now. It's like, okay, you want that data? Great, you got to collect it the right way, and it's got to not be used for other means. And if that isn't the story of the tech industry writ large, I don't know what it is. Which is, it's tech, technically complicated, and if you don't anticipate the worst use of your technology, you're kind of not doing your job. Yeah, and I feel like that is another frontier where you fi- if you were trying to figure out in an in an honorable way as as the government how you would regulate the collection and use of such data, you would have to write laws in such a broad way that they would account for all of the uses that can be made that can be made of the data, and you would also have to take into account the degree to which data collection via advertising or or whatever you know, funds the public good that you actually want to create. So there's all sorts of government regulatory stuff in there that I don't think a lot of people have thought about. And people give government uh, officials a lot of grief for not understanding tech, by which they used to mean they didn't understand how bits and bytes worked and what a megaflop was. Uh, But I think now it's more about the implications of what technology can allow people to do who have a lot of data about you. Yeah. And there's also the the possibility, you know, what is possible and what is not with technology, which is a real clash, because you could, for example, be a very privacy-focused legislator and come up with a new law or a regulator and come up with a new regulation that says, all right, you have to anonymize the data in a certain way. It's got to be clean. It's got to meet these standards, which is great if there isn't a loophole. Also, it's great unless it's not technically possible to do that which is the (laughs) at which point you've basically de facto outlawed something and and you know i think that there are lots of very smart people who can come up can rise to the challenge and say how do we need to meet this standard of anonymization and that they find a way to do it and harkening back to that apple story 
from earlier, the idea of having your web browser wait a random amount of time that could be as long as 48 hours to pass data along is a very clever way to use time to not further anonymize your data. That's great. But, you know, this also comes up in things like we talked about encryption in this episode. The idea that you could pass a law that says there needs to be a magic backdoor that only works when there's a court order, but otherwise it's completely secure. And the answer is encryption doesn't work that way. Like, you can't just legislate new parts of math it doesn't work that way and and so you end up in a situation where the legislation may either lead to it's impossible for us to do this and be within the law or well we can do it but it breaks everything else and and the, you, and therefore you've broken this thing wide open and that's i think that's a huge challenge it's very hard right i think that's a huge challenge for laws and regulations because um you kind of don't know until you set the bar and say okay smart computer people can you do this? And I think that's what Transport for London is sort of, you know, at least struggling with or is being discussed is like, how do you do this and do it right? And is it good enough for everybody in society? Do we all agree that that's like, yeah, okay, you did it. It's enough now. This is, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I'm glad I'm not one of those legislators. (laughs) Let me tell you. This is hard, hard stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, before we go, now that we've talked about encryption and privacy and how the tech industry is struggling with uh, uh, how to deal with making us not a surveillance state, but still be able to give us cool train data, I want to cheer you up with a fuzzy puppy update before we go. And this one is about something called the Puppy Prom. It happened... Just outside of San Diego, California, in San Diego County, Um, it is the um, Del Mar Highlands Town Center was the location of the Helen Woodward Animal Center's seventh annual Puppy Prom. It's a rescue organization. The alumni who have been uh, adopted from their shelter come back. The yes, there are dogs and cats in costumes, and they also just kind of hang out and get together, and I believe raise money for the uh, for the shelter. It's adorable. There's lots of dogs in outfits. There's lots of cats in outfits, um, and uh, everybody has a good time. Uh, my daughter's going to the actual human prom, uh, but the, I don't think there will be nearly as cool a set of uh, costumes because people don't really cosplay at the prom. But there, no. there are like. That- super awesome cosplay uh, puppies and kitties at the uh, at the puppy prom so it's, it's good to su- be able to support something unequivocally and i believe for this week prom. was uh, uh one of these days every every day has like 10 things that that day is but one of these days this week was a national i think it was like dog rescue day or something like that and so to shout out to the uh, to the dog rescue and i have my dog is a rescue dog my cat is a rescue cat so uh let's hear it for all the people out there who are rescuing uh animals from dire circumstances and then uh turning them into the next fuzzy puppy update uh shelly thank you so much for being on download this week Thank you for having me, and I apologize to anybody who thinks I should be Stephen. I'm not Stephen, no. but uh, I am me. No, you did. You did. You did well. You held up the the, the podcast. It didn't fall down Glad on us. Glad to hear it. And uh, that is all that is required. So people can find your podcast at relay.fm/parallel, and you're also on Twitter, twitter.com/slash 
Shelly. Slash Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Yes, <laughs> I got in early. The best. Chat me up over on the Twitter. Any other places they should look for you or other things you want to well, plug? Uh, it, it may be a little uh, long in the tooth, by which I mean a few months, but uh, you can go to iosaccessbook.com to learn about my book on iOS accessibility. Excellent, excellent. And as stated at the top of the show, I'll just say it again to remind you, and then you might forget anyway and still ask me, but just put it out there. We're going to skip next week. No episode next week. We'll be back from San Jose and Apple's developer conference in two weeks. But until then, we will be watching the headlines so you don't have to. Thanks, everybody. 